This morning is taken from Galatians, uh, chapter 23, verse 26, until uh, chapter 4, verse 7. You are all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave although he owns the whole estate. He is, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you were, because you were sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, so the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you into an heir. This is the Word of God. Well, good morning. Uh, let me have my welcome. Uh, my name's Matt Fuller, Minister here. Great to, uh, to see you. I seem to have brought a lot of stuff with me. Let me uh, fiddle with that for a moment. In fact, a couple of things I brought here. Uh, are only to say, uh, this morning we're thinking a little bit about adoption, uh, God's adoption of us as his children. And uh, actually it's a very wonderful subject indeed. And uh, as we look at it, something we need to um, need to dwell upon, think upon. Uh, I'll mention in a moment, I had the, uh, the pleasure this week of uh, rereading uh, some of Jim Packer's book, Knowing God, particularly his chapter on adoption, which is just quite marvellous. And if you've never read it, um, I'd say buy this book. I mean, it's a classic. It's 20 or 30 years almost now. But um, unbelievably good, particularly on uh, adoption. Uh, and if that's not your thing, if you think, oh, I can never read a book, I we went back to um, uh, this on the bookstore. There's a CD, Sons and Daughters, one of many that um, are on the bookstore. But this one in particular is all about being adopted. And uh, if you can stomach the tunes, which some might, but some will delight in them, uh, the words are magnificent, absolutely uh, magnificent, because adoption is something we need to understand very deeply. So let me uh, let me pray that we do so as we begin. And loving Father, once again we come to your words and how we need is to uh, reshape us, remake us. Please, uh, would we understand more deeply this morning what it means to be adopted as your children? And would your spirit be at work so that we feel that truth? It is uh, affecting upon us so that we change and live to the praise of your name, enjoying the freedom we have as your sons and daughters. Amen. Well, here's one little thing that uh, uh, Jim Packer says in his article, a little essay on adoption. He uh, puts it this way. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and the whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. <laughs> that sort of 
as the wisdom of God. I'm about to tell you about it. By the way, if you don't understand this, you don't understand anything. It sort of encourages you to read, doesn't it? Uh, I guess is his point. But I think he, he is right. This is a significant truth to understand. The idea that God is a father who adopts believers in Jesus Christ as his children. And even if your own understanding of relating to a father has been poor, uh, here is a truth that you can still understand and is genuinely transforming. Where does it fit into the book of Galatians? Well, I've been saying all along, uh, the, the Apostle Paul has written this letter then to uh, counter a false idea. There are false teachers who are essentially saying uh, the Christian life is this, faith in Jesus Christ plus obedience to various laws equals salvation. That's the uh, equation of their faith. Faith plus obedience, salvation equals no. Faith in Jesus Christ brings salvation. Oh, that would flow out into obedience. But it's not faith plus obedience equals you're saved, but faith in Jesus Christ and you're saved. You'll want to. You'll be changed. It's a very different way of living. And uh, today he's making the same point in slightly different language. Don't live like a slave, but live like a son or child of God. See, a slave is always wondering, have I done enough to please my master? Is my master happy with me today? Will I get beaten today, paid today? I don't know. The slave is always anxious about his relationship with the master. Son, very confident. I have a relationship here. Those will not change. Can't be broken. Two very different ways of relating. So, uh, uh, really, it's, it's this idea of adoption that um, uh, we're thinking about. But just so we uh, remind ourselves how it fits in, let me um, go back and read uh, just a little bit from verse, well, verse 24 actually, just uh, just before we started. Verse 24. We looked at this last time. If you were here. What was the role of the law? So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law because you're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, before anyone becomes a Christian, the law is a burdensome thing to them. It's onerous. You relate to the law as a, as a slave master. You can never do enough. You can never obey enough to be to be content. But when faith in Jesus Christ comes, that transforms. It's very different. Now you, the law is useful, helpful advice that you can um, uh, uh, relate to. His big illustration of this comes uh, in those first three verses of chapter 4. Let me uh, reread it and explain what's going on. Here's his illustration. What I'm saying, in case you haven't got it, is this is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Okay. So here you are, you're in a Roman culture, says Paul. And you know how it works. There's Marcus, and uh, he is the heir to the great vineyard estates. Uh, but Marcus has been told by his father, only when you're 20 do you uh, come into your inheritance. Only when you're 20 do you become a man in my household. And until that time, you're under a guardian, a tutor, in, in Latin, a curator. But uh, you're under a guardian until age 20 you're, you, you become a man. And that's frustrating if you're Marcus, because you know that, actually, 
all this will be yours, and actually you should be running it with your father, but until you're age 20, you've still got this tutor, this who's a, will be a, a respected slave in the household. But he's there with you, saying, uh, I'm afraid you can't go off drinking tonight, Marcus. Remember, your father said you needed to be in by 11 o'clock. So even though he is the son and will inherit everything, he's still under the supervision of this tutor. Marcus, don't forget, you've got to go and learn your Latin grammar this evening. He doesn't want to do those things, but he's under the guardian. He's not free, even though he's the heir. But, age 20, all changes. All changes. In the culture of the time, he'd be given a new toga, uh, an embroidered toga, to show he is a man now. And uh, no longer does he need the tutor, because he is now, in theory, uh, sophisticated and mature and uh, wise to make his own decisions. He's grown up. He's a man. He's got the toga of manhood. And now he can say to the other slaves, listen, my dad's in charge, but I'm in charge as well, so you do this, you do that. Own tutor, by the way. Actually, you're quite nice to be someone rather decent to you. But everything changes when he becomes a man. Verse 3. Just so, says Paul, when we were children, we were under the basic principles of the world. Um, most simply understood, before we became believers, we related to the law as a slave master. The law was burdensome to us and restricted our freedom. But now that faith has come, now that we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, we've grown up. We've been given the toga of maturity, or as he puts it here, uh, verse 27, you have clothed yourselves with Jesus Christ. That's a very strong image. You have clothed yourselves with Jesus Christ. I mean, biblically, it means at least two things. One, before we become a Christian, we are naked and dirty. Our, our behavior, our sinful behavior, is like filth upon us. And God sees that and says, You can stay away from me, you filthy sin. But Jesus Christ gives us a coat to cover our filth. We're now clothed in his moral purity, his righteousness. So now God looks upon us and says, ah, oh, you're, you're beautiful. I look at you and see beauty, my son. So we're, we're clothed in righteousness. And second, of course, that, that does define who we are. Because that's what clothes do. Clothes sort of define us. If, you, uh, if you're the sort of person that Monday to Friday wanders around in a, a sort of knee-length white coat, well, you're probably a doctor. That's what you doctors often do, uh, wander around like that. If you're the sort of person, Monday to, well, not just Monday to Friday, the sort of person who wanders around in army fatigues, you're probably a soldier, or want to be. Um, uh, you know, that's, the, the, the clothes identify who they are. It doesn't just need to be a profession. If you go to Elephant and Castle of, a, of an evening, particularly about six o'clock, all the teenagers are wearing precisely the same clothes, precisely the same hoodies and, and caps, because that's their uniform, that defines them, that is their tribe, as it were. Or if you go to the King's Road, particularly of a weekend, all the women, bizarrely, look identical. They all wear precisely the same sort of clothes and their hair in the same way and the makeup is exactly the same and the handbags are the same. And it's slightly odd because they've got an extraordinary amount of money and yet they all dress precisely the same because that's their tribe. That's their, they get their identity from their clothing. That's just how we work. 
Paul is saying, your identity as a Christian comes from Jesus Christ. That's what defines you. That's who you are. You're clothed in Christ. So these other things, verse 28, are far less significant now. So there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. He's saying all these things, your, um, uh, your race, your class, your gender, they don't matter so much now. Don't let them define you. Because you are what you are. You can't stop being, remember it is, a white, middle class Kiwi. You can't stop being those things or, or whatever you happen to be. Um, but they're not your primary identity. That is being Jesus Christ. He has clothed you. You are clothed in Jesus Christ. And that changes things. Yeah, it is. When you, when you go out, um, you go out for an evening, or you're going somewhere special, or an interview or something, and uh, there you are. So you get yourself sorted out, and you get dressed. It's important. Function, social function, work function. And what do you do? You, you get dressed, and you look in the mirror and think, yes. Or you might think, no, no, and change again. First you think, yes. And uh, we all have our feel-good suits, feel-good clothes, you know, the, our lucky shirts, jumpers, socks, whatever it may be. The things we put on and think, yes, yes, I feel confident now. And uh, in our own home, you know, you know, we might get excited, yes, and sort of gee ourselves up. But when we're wearing our, our feel-good clothes, we go out into the world confident. Says that's up. If you're clothed with Jesus Christ, that, that, that changes everything. You approach the world, you approach other people differently because you put on your, take it off, but you, you're clothed with Jesus Christ and you think, in God's eyes, I look good. I look great. And his opinion matters more than anyone else's. That's brilliant. So we're clothed in Jesus Christ. But the idea that dominates uh, uh, this little section is this idea of adoption. Adoption. And uh, really two little things to say on this. Because there seems to be a, a, a little parallel that goes on here. Let me just draw it out. So verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son into the world. Verse 6. Because your sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. There's a double sending here to bring home the truths of our adoption. Or as uh, uh, I put it up there. First, God sent his son to secure our status of adoption. But second to that, God sent his spirits to bring our experience of adoption. They're both necessary. We need to understand how they both relate. Let's work through them. Uh, first then, verse 4, God sent his son to secure our status of adoption. Verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, this, he was genuinely incarnate of human flesh, born under law, born into Israel, under the same law that uh, condemned uh, all of mankind at that point. Why? Why did he do that? Well, there's a, there's a double purpose in verse 5. It is first to redeem those under law, second so that we might receive the full rights of sons. There's a double purpose, to redeem us, so that we might be sons and heirs. 
firstly, he, he redeemed us, verse, uh, verse 5. He was sent to redeem us. Remember this last week, a couple of weeks ago, this idea of redemption. It is liberation from slavery at the payment of a price. You and I were enslaved to the law. We, we had tried to keep it, we'd failed, and law owned us. Law was our master. There was no way we could buy ourselves out of slavery. The debt is you know, a billion pounds. There's just no way we could pay it. But Jesus Christ comes along, lives a perfect life, therefore is able to pay that debt in fact. He's able to pay that in order to free us from slavery. Back in chapter 3, do you remember? He took the curse, that was the payment. He took the curse of God in order to liberate us from slavery. The price was his life. True, wonderful. Here, that's presented as the... Um, the penultimate aim. And it may be that we're, we're well used, if we're Christians, well used to thinking in those terms, Jesus died to save me from sin, curse. True, wonderfully true. But Paul here says, to save us from that, and for, positively, something else, for adoption. So he was sent to redeem those under law in order that we might receive the full rights of sons. That's the ultimate um, so I don't mishear Paul uh, when he says inherit the rights of sons that's not a misogynist comment he's saying it, it um, in the culture of the time, first century uh, Roman Empire, it was the firstborn son who inherited so primogeniture, very, very much the order of the day only the firstborn son got the estate, the land so what he's saying here is that everyone Jew, Gentile, Greek, slave um, sorry, no, uh, free, slave male, female, all who trust in Jesus Christ are the firstborn son. All get to inherit. That's that's his point here. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are liberated from slavery to the law, to sin, to death, to curse, and you are positively, legally declared a son, an heir, a child of the living God. At that point, he becomes your father. That is a legal status which you cannot lose. Again, in the culture of the time, Roman culture, adoption required seven witnesses, which seems a little excessive, but the logic of it was, if there was ever any dispute over what took place, did, was this child ever really adopted? You've got seven witnesses there to guarantee you know, that there's no mistake, because this was a solemn undertaking. It wasn't something you sort of uh, drifted in and out of. So the, the, the adoptee, the father, who, sorry, the adopter of the father couldn't turn around and say, you know what, I'm a bit fed up with you today. You never tidy your room. You never come home from school on time. So I'm going to unadopt you. You're not allowed to do that. This is for life. Permanent. There is a change of status. One goes from being an orphan, perhaps, or, or outside the family to legally being within the family. And that could not change. It's done. There's a fundamental change of legal status. So, um, again, Jim Packer brings this up very well. He says, so what does that mean? It means that we are then treated in precisely the same way as our elder brother. So Jesus Christ is the only natural son in God's family. But if we're brought in and adopted as a child, we're treated in precisely the same way as him. What does that mean? Well, a few things. Uh, we submit to the Father's authority, just as Jesus did. So John 5, I came to do the will of him who sent me. 
we are loved by God the Father in the same way he loves his Son. Very striking. We have the fellowship that Jesus had. So John 16, he comments, everyone will leave me at my trial, but my Father will never leave me alone. Once you come into the family, that is, that is your experience too. You have permanent fellowship with the Father. Everyone else deserts you in some way. He never will. He cannot. He has legally committed himself to you. We have honour like the Son. So John 5, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son as they honour the Father. We receive somewhat of that too. And we will inherit with Jesus Christ. When this world is remade, we'll rule it with him. So it is we're ruled by love, by always accompanied, by honoured by our Heavenly Father. We are legally adopted by God as his children. And that cannot change, cannot be annulled, cannot be broken. God sent his Son to secure our status of adoption. It's wonderfully true. But there's a bit more than that. Because uh, God, secondly, God sent his spirit to bring our experience of adoption as well. So verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So you're no longer a slave but a son. And since you're a son, God has also made you an heir. Now there's no delay in this. This is it's purely a logical argument. Uh, we're redeemed by the work of the Son, become a child of God, and then God sends his Spirit. There's not a sort of delay. It's all instantaneous. No one becomes a Christian uh, apart from uh, the work of the Spirit. But when, he become, when you become a Christian, it is the Spirit of God's Son who takes up residence in your heart. Now, that, that may well be a very familiar truth if you've been a Christian a while. But just pause and think, that is staggering. That God, by his Spirit, would reside in you to transform your life. Did you read in the paper this week of the, uh, the brother and sister who were clearing out their, uh, their parents' old house uh, where they'd grown up as children and uh, there's this old vase on top of the cupboard and they said, oh, I wonder what that's worth. And, um, and they took it to an auction house and they said, oh, you know, well, it's worth quite a bit. And so on Thursday it was sold for £51 million. It's a Chinese vase from, I'll get this all wrong, a Chinese Qinlong ceramic from the 18th century, £51 million. Now that vase had sat on their shell, on the uh, cupboard in their house when they were growing up all their lives. All their lives they'd sat there with this thing that could absolutely transform who they were. And what they could do. 51 million pounds just there. And as Christians we could do that. We could live our Christian lives just neglecting the fact that within us God has placed his spirit which can utterly transform our lives. Utterly change us. Extraordinary. It's amazing. It's a staggering truth. And why has God done that? Why has God placed his spirit within us? It is so, well, it's very striking, verse 6, so we will, or the Spirit calls out within us, Abba, Father. 
That is an extraordinary cry of intimacy. Those are precisely the words that Jesus uh, speaks uh, in Mark's Gospel in the Garden of Gethsemane in his moment of uh, crisis there. Abba, Father. It's a cry of Papa, of Daddy, of intimacy. And Paul is reinforcing the fact you can cry out to God in precisely the same way that Jesus did. And that's what God has placed within you. In order to, he's placed his spirit within you so you realise that, so you feel that. He's placed it into your heart. Charles Spurgeon has a lovely picture of this. He says, just as the heart pumps blood around the body to every faculty, every, every organ, every member, so God has placed his spirit in our hearts to pump this truth around every part of us because we need to know it and live it, feel it. It's quite possible to know in our heads the status without living it out, without enjoying it. So a child um, could be adopted into a, a cold, formal home. And uh, so this child, aged five, comes into a home, but it's a fairly restrained, sort of Victorian cliche of a, a home. Uh, there's, no, there's no affection. There's no tactile love. It's very formal. And he may know that he's legally adopted, but there's distance there. Very different coming into the home where the child is embraced and loved and cuddled and hugged and uh, constantly played with and bounced around. You would feel different in your relation. The legal status doesn't change, but how you feel about it makes all the difference in the world. Very different. And the Spirit's work is to give us a deep experience of our status of adoption. It's to take the objective truth that we are God's sons and make it live subjectively within us. That is his work as the spirit of adoption. We've um, been reading in our house uh, this book, a chapter of Russell Moore. It's called Adopted for Life. It's uh, essentially it's a book encouraging Christians to adopt uh, children in this world. And uh, it's, it's a very moving book in many ways. Uh, he tells of... Um, uh, near the beginning, the account of how he and his wife adopted two Russian boys about age one from an orphanage uh, in Russia, They'd flown out a couple of times. Eventually, after mountains of red tape, they get the green light to go and collect these boys. And uh, in this little bit, he, he tells of well, much of the story, tells of the surprise of how difficult it is for these two young boys. They're not, they're not brothers, so they're both about the same age, about one how difficult it is for them to, to transfer from being in the, an orphanage, which was pretty miserable conditions, to being in a home with uh, a family. So uh, they, uh, they go to pick these boys up. And um, they, uh, well, let me uh, abbreviate it. They dress the boys in their new clothes that uh, the grandparents have given to them. They take the boys outside, and they're terrified because they've never been outside the building. And so they see the sun for the first time. They feel the wind for the first time. When the car doors slam, they're, they're, it's not a noise they've ever heard before. So they're terrified. And he describes as they start to drive away how both these young boys are straining with their hands to go back to the orphanage. I whispered to Sergei, now called Timothy, that place is a pit. 
if only you knew what's waiting for you. A home with a mummy and a daddy who love you. Grandparents, great-grandparents, cousins, playmates, McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid, it was disgusting, but they had no other reference points. To them it was their home. Later on, we finally knew that the boys had acclimatised to being in our home, that they trusted us, when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew there would be another meal coming. They wouldn't have to fight for the scraps with other children. This was the new normal for them. They are now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 40 yards away. But I will never forget the picture of those little hands reaching back for the orphanage. And in that, I see myself in them. It's a highly emotive book uh, uh, when you read it all. But um, do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, in how I relate to my God as Father, quite often I'm, I'm, I'm not certain of his love for me. I am, as it were, hiding food and stuffing it in the high chair. Extraordinary thing for a one-year-old to do, because just expecting that otherwise the food will get cleared away before he's had a chance to eat it, it'll be passed on to the next child so they can have some. That's, that's even his comment, as Russell Moore is, as a Christian, I know God is my Father, and yet I don't trust him. I'm not certain of his love for me. So I stuff food away. I, I, I look back and think, maybe, maybe it'd be better over there. Of course, that's crazy. But we can live that way, even as Christians. So his point there is, a number of points, but his point he's making to believers is live as children of a God who loves you, not as orphans, or in Paul's language, not as slaves. You can never lose the affection of your father. You can never do that. So trust him and let that truth change you. Practically, what does that look like? What's that going to mean in, in the Christian life? Well, let's take just a, a couple of examples. Forgiveness. So someone is incredibly rude to you tomorrow. You work or, or wherever you are socially. Someone is just unbelievably rude to you. Completely snubs you, excludes you from the conversation, and makes you, makes you feel incredibly small. Now, how do you respond? As a slave, you, argh, you sort of rage against that. You have to sort of fight back because you know, your status has been, oh, you know, you're, you're who you are, you just oh, you shrink. Uh, you've been diminished, and so you have to retaliate. But if, if your confidence as a son of God, a child of God, you think, oh, well, that's a bit silly of them. I know my father loves me, and that's the most important thing about who I am. I probably ought to pray for them, because they're deeply insecure if they feel the need to snub other people to feel good themselves. See, if you're confident in the, in the love of the father, it transforms. What about lying? Just a small little lie. You forget... Um, you forget a significant birthday of your mother, your spouse, your cousin, your sibling. You forget a significant birthday and uh, you realise with horror and you can't, you know, oh no, they're going to think so badly of me. So you ring up and say, did you get my card? It's in the post. And um, why are you doing that? Because you just can't bear for them to think that badly of you. You just, oh, I've done it again. They'll just despair of how useless a son, husband 
whatever you are to them. But a child of God who's confident can say, oh, look, I'm deeply sorry. I, I have, I've really screwed up. I forgot your birthday. That's really, that's really hurtful. I'm sorry about that. Please forgive me. But a child of God can confess their faults, admit their faults, because their status doesn't depend upon them. They're confident in the love of their father, so they can admit freely our mistakes. It's utterly transforming. So what you and I need is the Spirit's work to impress upon our hearts a deep understanding that we are God's children. What do we need? We need assurance. Assurance of his love for us. You see, a child is never anxious about their, the love. A little child doesn't, of a healthy, in a healthy family, doesn't sit there thinking, I wonder if I'll be fed today. I wonder if I'll be clothed today. They just sort of go, Wah! and expect it to happen. It's just, just normal. And there's assurance of love. Assurance of inheritance. A child is not a slave that can get fired. A child will inherit. Assurance of God's presence. God is there listening, watching. We may not always know it, in our heads. But God is like the father or the, or the parents who sneak into the, the toddler's room at night when the toddler's asleep and go. Now we may be unaware of it, but God is always there looking upon his children going, I love them. Always. You can't lose that. Assurance of his presence. Assurance of access to him. A childlike confidence that our father will always hear us. Children are good at this. Adults are... Um, nervous about whether they'd be heard. So if you had to go and meet the Queen, um, you'd be slightly, unless you were fairly self-assured, you'd be fairly little, you know, what will I, does she want to meet me? I mean, I'm just, she's just going through the motions. I'm a bit embarrassed. I won't, I won't push myself forward. But a child has no such inhibitions. You know, a little toddler might go, oh, the Queen, and sort of, sort of stumble up and, um, and recognise, or maybe not even know who she is. People aren't, don't matter. It's that childlike confidence of wandering in. It's transforming. You see, I mean, this is a very, very famous photo. It's often used to to make this point. But um, remember, remember this photo of uh, there's JFK at his desk. There's John Jr. hiding underneath. It's just a very beautiful picture, isn't it? Because there you have. The President of the United States, and not everyone just wanders into the Oval Office. Uh, there's a, a few little barriers to get through before you do that. But uh, John Jr., he doesn't care. He just, you know, it's just his dad. I'll just go and play around underneath his desk. Might find the nuclear codes. Who knows? He doesn't care. It's his dad. And that's the Spirit's work to impress that truth upon us. That God is our Father. Always loving always with us, always available, always providing, always. Last thing. How then do we put these two together? So we have a secure status of adoption. The Spirit, that's the work of the Son who, who, who um, wins that for us. Then secondly, there's this experience of adoption that is the Spirit's work to impress that truth upon us. You just have to keep those two together. You have to remember that verse 6 comes after verse 4 and 5. So it's the work of Jesus Christ, sent by God the Father to redeem those under law so that we might become sons. And because of his work, the Spirit comes into our hearts. So don't separate those two out. We need both halves. So, as you said, it's no good just to rest upon the, uh, the raw truth that um, we have a status as God's children. 
We need the Spirit to impress that upon us. But you can't just say, Spirit, give me an experience of God. Because, rightly understood, that experience is always an experience of the work of the Son. See how those two things are so absolutely tied together. Verse 6, because of the work of Jesus Christ, in making you the Son, the Spirit at work. You have to hold those two together. Practically, what does that mean? It means we need to well, ask God, pray to him, Father, will you, will you by your Spirit impress this truth deeper into my heart and pump it around my body? And I'm going to meditate upon the work of the Son. I'm going to think about him and what he has done and what he has achieved for me and what I now am. It's taking that work and then letting the Spirit push it within us. So for those two, uh, two Russian boys, uh, Sergei and Maxim, who were renamed Benjamin and Timothy, removing the book, of course, it takes them months before they answer to their new names, Maxim, um, uh, Benjamin and Timothy. They're just not used to them. But of course, over time, they get used to oh, We've got new names, and that's who we are now. It takes time. It took time before they had the confidence not to stuff the food away. It took time. But also, of course, it took a deep acquaintance with the love of their parents. They there, and they studied their parents' love for them day in, day out. And if we want this transformation, if we want to more deeply understand what it is to be a son of the living God, a child of the living God, have him as our father, we need to study his love for us. And it's as we do that that the Spirit will pump it around us. It'll, ch- it'll retool us. We'll answer to a new name, that of child, beloved child. Let's pray, it might be so. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you for this objective truth that if we're trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, we have become your child. And we do dare to ask that the extraordinary truth that your Spirit is within us, that he would be at work driving that truth deeper into our hearts, pumping that truth around every part of who we are so that we see ourselves as your children. That is our fundamental identity So we go out and uh, live in this world. Please would we be changed by the knowledge that you love us as your children. Amen.